Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for checking out my YouTube channel today, The Study of Antiquity and the Middle Ages. As always, I am your host, Nick Barksdale, and today we are joined once again by the awesome Dr. Louise Hitchcock. Dr. Hitchcock, thank you so much for coming on today. Thank you so much for inviting me back. If you love the Bronze Age, the Bronze Age collapse, and obscure subjects, peoples, and cultures within it, then this episode is just for you. We are going to be discussing none other than Alashia and the Bronze Age collapse. So as we get started, Dr. Hitchcock, let's talk about Alashia. What was Alashia, or what is sometimes known as the Kingdom of Alashia? That's a really good question, and we don't really have the answer. I actually, in preparing for this episode, I got a preprint of a new article by uh, people who study Cipro Minoan at the University of Cambridge, uh, Pippa Steele and uh, Philip Boys, and uh, they are still not sure what uh, the Kingdom of Alashia is. It's argued sometimes that it's the site of Enkemi in southeastern uh, Cyprus near the Panhandle. And this is based on the fact that Enkemi in the 15th century is the biggest city on Cyprus. However, it could also be uh, or designate the entire island because by the 13th century, we start to have appearing new centers all over the island with monumental um, palatial-like buildings, but we tend to call them administrative centers. And so it could be something that designates the site of Enkemi, but it could be just a term referring to an entire island. So for those who don't know, and they're not familiar with the geography of this subject, where is Alashia located? In the island of Cyprus, it's um, located, it's about a half hour flight to Beirut or Tel Aviv from Cyprus, and um, it's just south of Anatolia. It's uh, situated midway between west and east, it's the largest island in the Mediterranean, and it looks like this uh, sort of round circle with a tail, um, and tail is a long peninsula or panhandle. And for those of you watching this, I'm sure you're looking at the map right now that's really going to show you what we're talking about. And as this zooms out, you're going to see its very central location. And as you can imagine, the important role it would play in this area of the Mediterranean. So let's talk not only about Alashia, but let's talk about the people. What do we know about the people who lived there? That's also a really good question. It seems that the earliest inhabitants of uh, Cyprus or Alashia came from the Levant. And this is based on the very early houses of the Neolithic and Chalcolithic uh, being round and built close together in um, sort of conjoined uh, round buildings. And also you get the appearance of the fallow deer which is a particular deer type of deer that would have been brought over from the Levant. And so when I say the Levant, I mean what is today um, modern Lebanon, coastal Syria, and Israel. And then by about 2500 BCE, it's been suggested that there is a, another wave of people coming in from Anatolia. And this is based on the fact that the houses suddenly change from being round to being rectangular and from um, beef being introduced into the diet and the appearance of, um, of bovines or, or cows and bulls. And then um, they would have settled in and you would have had 
a very mixed population um, with people coming from the East and the West. Uh, Cyprus was very much engaged uh, with the Greek Aegean, but also with the um, Semitic Near East and um, Anatolia from a very early time. And um, you would have had uh, an ethnically or culturally mixed population. And it's like a lot of our modern categories do not really uh, fit when you're looking at the ancient world or even the modern world. I like to use as an example the pirate Barbarossa, who was one of the um, Barbary pirates. His mother was um, Greek, uh, Christian. His father was Albanian Muslim, and he was born on the island of Lesbos. And uh, he traveled around the Mediterranean conquering places. But uh, we used to think of islands as like these um, sort of isolated laboratories. Uh, a good example is the Galapagos Island that nobody ever went to or visited. And so you could study this pristine culture. But in terms of the islands of the Mediterranean, they were far more networked into the surrounding region uh, than places that would have been in the hinterland because of sailing and um, trying to obtain uh, raw materials. And Cyprus was a very important source of copper in the Bronze Age. And so that would have also made it uh, extremely popular with the surrounding regions. So you've mentioned that due to the sea lanes and peoples moving to and fro, you have this multi-ethnic, possibly multicultural population on Cyprus, and you brought up the Aegean. Would you expand a little bit to talk about the Aegean connection to Cyprus? Yeah, that is also, like everything about Cyprus is actually very controversial. Cyprus is one of the last few divided countries on Earth. Um, this is contemporary Cyprus, um, where you had an attempt in the 1970s, and this is a time when uh, Cyprus has a mixed Turkish and Greek population to this day. And in the 1970s, the Greek government attempted to mount a coup. And as a result, all the Turkish Cypriots fled north, all the Greek Cypriots fled south, and the island became partitioned. And um, the only recognized government is the Republic of Cyprus in the south, which is predominantly Greek. However, um, our prominent archaeologists there have wanted to see an early Greek colonization of Cyprus starting at least as early as the 13th century. And um, quite a bit of Mycenaean pottery has been found in Cyprus in the 13th century, although the earliest uh, Aegean pottery is found in the 15th. But the assumption was um, that this pottery that appears in the 13th century, and a lot of it are, are craters, that is large um, sort of punch bowls for drinking uh, wine, that these represented Mycenaean migration. However, um, petrographic analysis, that is a scientific analysis of the clay, shows that the pots actually originated in the Argolid, the region near Mycenae and Tiryns. So they were traded in. They weren't a result of any kind of early colonization. But the Aegean was influencing Cyprus from the um, at least the 15th century. The writing system that the Cypriots used is referred to as Cypro-Minoan. It's um, the syllabary, or very similar to the syllabary, used by the Minoans on Crete. And even though Cyprus is closer to the Near East, they chose to adopt a Minoan syllabary to write their 
still undeciphered language. And so they were very much interacting with the Aegean. And this could be for purposes simply of prestige, drawing on a more secretive and uh, a different writing system. But you have that. You also have lots of architectural characteristics. I lived in Cyprus for a year in 1999, um, studying Cypriot architecture and its Aegean connection. And you have a lot of Aegean features being uh, copied in terms of uh, having large storage halls containing storage jars called pithoi, which are like about uh, a meter tall for storing things like oil. Um, you have uh, an ashlar or worked masonry tradition um, developing uh, and becoming more complex. You have the introduction of hearths, although they're not like Aegean hearths, they're more of a local style. And you also have horned altars and horns of consecration, which are something we associate with the Minoan world. And I've suggested, because they're copied but not copied um, precisely, that when um, the island of Crete, uh, when the Minoan civilization was destroyed in 1450, and then Knossos is taken over by Mycenaean Greeks, and then Knossos falls around the 14th century, that the Cypriots are stepping into this trade vacuum and appropriating the symbols of uh, Minoan power in order to promote uh, their own uh, trade relationships and prestige with other Near Eastern countries. And we also see this with um, a lot of trade that's going on between the Canaanites and the Cypriots with um, Cypriot pottery often accompanied uh, with Mycenaean pottery. And what this indicates is that the Cypriots were the agents moving this pottery around because they're also selling their pottery as well as um, the Mycenaean style pottery. My next question would be, what do we know, if anything, about the societal structure of Alashia? Um, I think the most that we can say is that it's a hierarchical structure because you do have uh, at most of the ancient cities in Cyprus, a large, you have a large central monumental building that dominates. You have temples uh, indicating a po polytheistic religion. And, but we don't know if it was a king or a group of administrators like you find on Crete. In contrast, we know the Mycenaean hierarchy very well because um, we have linear B tablets that tell us. What we do know about Alashia's social structure comes from um, things like the Amarna tablets and tablets from Ugarit, which refer to a king of Alashia. So indicating a king, but you know this could be a king or it could just be some kind of leader um, that negotiates with these different groups because um, kingship was sort of the uh, known quantity in these regions. So it's very possible we have a king, but we don't have that evidence coming from Cyprus itself, but rather from um, correspondence in uh, things like Ugaritic and Akkadian cuneiform that indicate this. So you've mentioned temple complexes and you've talked about horned altars. My question is now, do we know anything more about the religion or religions of peoples who lived on Alashia? Cyprus or Alashia is the legendary birthplace of the goddess Aphrodite. Um, she was born out of the foam off the coast of uh, what is today Paphos in Western Cyprus. 
and there's a temple of um, Cypriot Aphrodite in um, Western Cyprus at uh, Old Paphos, or what they call Kuklia Paleopaphos, that dates back to the um, late bronze to the late Bronze Age, and it continues in use with rebuildings into the Roman period. And we know that Aphrodite was worshipped there, not as a personified goddess, but as a shiny black stone. And we have what we think is that stone that was built into a later pavement, but it's depicted actually on Roman coins. Um, we also know that the worship of uh, goddesses goes back into the earlier era with female figurines, but we also know that bulls were important, which could indicate some sort of Cypriot version of a, of a classical Zeus or a Mesopotamian Adad, both weather gods uh, represented by um, bulls. So bovine worship is important. We have at Kidion um, near Larnaca, which is a city you fly into normally if you go to Cyprus, um, five temples, which indicates different deities and that there was a close relationship between religious activity and metallurgy. It, religious practice was a way of shrouding um, metallurgy and metallurgical activity in mystery so that not everybody um, knows the uh, technology. I can also just mention a couple of other things. At the end of the Bronze Age, in Enkemi, there are two temples. One is called the Temple of the Horn God, and also there's a goddess uh, worshipped alongside of him and another one that's called the Temple of the Ingot God. And both of these uh, statues, in fact, the, the um, horn god weighs about 38 kilograms and 50 centimeters tall. This is not big compared to the monumental statues you get in Egypt or in later classical Greece, but it represents uh, the largest bronze figurine found in the Bronze Age in this uh, region. And the horned cap he wears, um, is, uh, is similar to what we see with the Sea People and with the Sardinians. And it's the same with the Ingot God. The Ingot God also has a horned helmet and holds a shield and a spear, much like you see with Sardinian figurines. Um, how, and uh, it's often associated with a cult of metallurgy. However, um, study of this statue has shown that um, the addition of the ingot that he stands on, it looks like he's on a little tiny uh, surfboard, and um, his beard were later additions. So it was a figurine that was modified uh, at some time in the past. So you do actually have religious activity and sacrifice oriented around metallurgy. In northern Cyprus, at the, cult, at the site of Myrtu Pigatis, which is another large structure, you have one of these colossal horned altars, and there's um, indications that you had sort of uh, animal sacrifice, probably bull sacrifice. Lots of ashes found there and a drain for draining the blood off of an animal. That's interesting. I did not know that the beard was a later addition. That's completely new to me. It's very obscure. Um, sometimes I find my biggest discoveries are in the library when I read an article and you find stuff like this in a footnote. Um, but this has been known now for about 20 years, but it is fairly recent information and not extremely widespread except until now on your page. And I should credit the person who wrote the article. His name is George Papasavis. 
So you've mentioned different texts briefly that brought up Elashia. What do we know about these texts? Were they literary? Were they political? Would you uh, expand on that? Okay, we, what we don't have, we don't have literature on Elashia. What we have are um, diplomatic texts. We know, especially what we learned uh, more than anything is from the Amarna tablets. Um, for uh, just to give a background for people who may not have heard uh, of the Amarna tablets, Amar Tel El Amarna was the ancient Egyptian city of Akhenaten, founded by um, the, the king Akhenaten, who instituted a monotheistic religion in Egypt. He probably did this in order to um, wrest power and wealth away from the priesthood of Amarna, which we were becoming wealthier and wealthier. Now, he engaged in diplomatic correspondence with uh, Mesopotamia and with the Hittites and with Cyprus. In all cases, these tablets are written in Akkadian, which is interesting because Akkadian is the Semitic language of Mesopotamia. But it had also become a diplomatic language, as French was in the 18th, 19th century and English is today. And until recently, even the designation of Alashia was challenged by some archaeologists saying we could not, with, we could not um, securely identify Cyprus with Alashia. It could have been a place in Anatolia. However, what kind of seals the deal is that three of these tablets from Tel El Amarna, which date to the 14th century, um, they had petrographic analysis done on them. And the clay was shown to have come from a region um, near the Trodos Mountains in Cyprus. Uh, the site is known as Alissa. And Alissa, it's uh, a lot of these buildings are not completely published yet, but Alissa, it's um, as big as Knossos, but not as many rooms, just in terms of its footprint. It's as big as Knossos and has um, a lot of elaborate architecture, including uh, a three-ton block and a hall built of ashlar masonry that contains storage jars and a hearth and um, what's regarded as a sacred well. Anyway, three of these um, Amar Amarna tablets come from this area, and these three tablets are tablets that deal with Alashia. And it's from um, the king or leader of Alashia apologizing to the Egyptian king that a shipment of copper is late. And I got, the only reason I know all this is I've just started because of my interest in pandemic, which I spoke about in another podcast. Um, one of the tablets talks about how um, the workers on Cyprus were gripped by the hand of Nurgle, the god of plague. So it indicates that uh, there was a plague going on and this slowed down um, the shipment of copper to from uh, Alashia to Cyprus, I mean to Egypt rather. But um, doing a petrographic analysis, and this was done uh, by the Israeli scientific scholar Yuval Gorin and his colleagues, and they were able to determine that the clay did in fact come from Cyprus. So we have these three tablets and it's not much. And then you have a tablet from the king of Ugarit as Ugarit's being destroyed. And he's asking the king of Alashia to send help because he's being attacked 
by the Sea People. And um, the letter never makes it to Alashia. And this has also led to some speculation as to whether um, there was some kind of uh, political connection between Ugarit and Alashia. Did Alashia rule over Ugarit, which seems unlikely to me because I've actually been to Ugarit. I, I lived in Syria for a year and Ugarit is um, it's one of the biggest uh, sites in the region and was also an important gateway city for trading with Mesopotamia. And it sounds like I'm going far afield, but it's, it's important for understanding these connections because Ugarit also is um, probably the biggest source of texts written in Cipro Minoan outside of Cyprus. So there had to be real close trade relationship uh, going on between the two areas. Um, they were political texts. They were diplomatic texts. The Amarna tablets, again, these, this was the first and biggest example of diplomatic correspondence going on um, in this region at this period. You could say that, uh, among other things, and again, this goes um, against the whole idea that everything comes from Western civilization. Um, diplomacy was invented in the Bronze Age by the cultures of the Aegean and the Mediterranean. So these were diplomatic texts entirely um, being exchanged. And you also have a, an archive of Akkadian texts in the Hittite world. Um, you do have in uh, Mesopotamia and in Egypt and in Hittite, you have literary texts um, and you have political texts and you have lots of economic texts. In Cyprus, we don't have anything. We, it's assumed they're mainly um, administrative. And we know from the Mycenaean civilization, you should have me back to talk about them, we, but we know from uh, the Mycenaean civilization that Linear B was entirely used for administrative purposes. The Minoans seem to have had texts used um, for religious purposes as well as administration, but we also cannot read the Minoan language. and. Uh, one of my former students, who's now my colleague, he's one of the world's leading experts on uh, the Minoan language. So you might want to have a chat with him sometime. I am always the hustler for my YouTube channel, so trust me, I'll be I'll be asking for that name after this interview. <laughs> I think I'm also the hustler for your YouTube channel. Hey, I have I have no issues with that whatsoever. <laughs> We've touched on. Rather briefly earlier, the Sea Peoples themselves, one of the great factors of the Bronze Age collapse or transformation, if you prefer that term. And so my next question is, let's talk Alashia, the Bronze Age collapse, and the Sea Peoples. Would you expand on what happens to Alashia during this time and how do the Sea Peoples come into play here? This is really interesting. Um, because a lot of people who haven't looked at this closely either assume Alashia are the Sea Peoples or Alashia is destroyed by the Sea People, and neither is really the case. What happens in um, the 12th century is that a lot of these big administrative centers that I've mentioned, um, two in southern Cyprus at uh, Moroni and Calvessos, and Alissa, near the, which is a gateway site to the Trodos I've mentioned, and could even have been Alashia, are destroyed um, in a fiery uh, destruction. Enkemi kind of declines. Now, 
other sites, Kideon, which is this big temple site with five temples, keeps right on going. And you also have a Phoenician toehold there. And Kuklia also keeps right on going, as does Hollis Sultan Teke. And in the 11th century, you actually have Cypriot merchants traveling to Sardinia. And we know this because even though Sardinia was an important source of copper itself, we have um, copper ingots from Cyprus in Sardinia that have Cypriminoan signs engraved on them. And we also have these sort of bronze tripod stands for making offerings found in Sardinia, um, as well as Aegean pottery. And this is interesting for a few reasons, because when the Cypriots are going to Sardinia, they completely seem to bypass Sicily, which is very close. Um, although you do find one sign of Cypriot ritual in Sicily. I forgot to mention this earlier when I was talking about religion. Something that characterizes Cypriot religion are um, these cattle scapulae that have notches on them. And these notch scapulae seem to be used for um, reading omens or foretelling the future. We don't know exactly how this works, but it spreads to Sicily. It also is found in Philistine um, culture. So these are things spreading to the Sea People sites from Cyprus. Now, it also, as we have some sites uh, being destroyed and um, the ritual sites seeming to continue, we also have a couple of new settlements founded at this time in Cyprus. One is near um, what is today uh, a military base called Pila Kokonakremos, and it's a settlement site that goes like a couple of generations. And it's being um, excavated by this elder statesman of Cypriot archaeology who hates me. His name is Vassos Cariorgas, and he hates me because I dared criticize the idea of an early Greek colonization of Cyprus. And he and um, his Greek colleagues are arguing that it's a Minoan colony because you have some Minoan jewelry there, but you also have other sorts of things being found there. You have Canaanite jars, you have uh, metal hoards and things like that. So this is something that's still being investigated. Um, and there's another very interesting site that he excavated in Western Cyprus called Ma Paleo Castro. And Ma Paleo Castro is on a promontory that juts out into the sea. And it's got um, a number of uh, Aegean features such as hearths, but it also has Canaanite storage jars. It has different sorts of architectural plans. And he built a museum there that he calls the Museum of Mycenaean Colonization. But what it really seems to be is a mixed culture. And uh, my colleague, Aaron Mayer, and I have argued that this was a pirate settlement composed of sea peoples. And that uh, it fits into what we know about pirate geography and that pirates liked promontories because they were easily defensible and you do have a wall across the neck of this promontory and you have a very good view of the sea which would enable you to um, pick off prey. And then while all this is going on, you have a trading, important trading site in Hollis Sultan Teke in the south, which is also near Larnaca, where you have lots of Aegean 
you have a G and N Canaanite features. And what seems to be going on there is traders that are um, sort of trying to use all the symbols of prestige that they can uh, to enhance their status in trading at the time. Um, and you also have a lot of the features of sort of Mycenaean-style Cypriot pottery that's being made at this time. A lot of these features are also found in Philistine pottery. So there seems to be a very close Cypriot connection with the Sea People. And I would just want to add one more thing about the Cypriot connection with Sardinia. Why would, a, why would a, um, an island that's rich in copper be going to another island that's rich in copper? And it could be that they're going there um, in order to get tin coming from Cornwall. Uh, because the only place where you see Sardinian material culture outside of Sardinia is the Iberian Peninsula um, area, which is now Portugal. And this would be a good place. It's not like, it doesn't mean that uh, anybody from the Mediterranean was going directly to Cornwall, but tin could have been coming in through here. And there was a recent article on a shipwreck with tin ingots, and I can't remember the exact date, maybe 11th or 12th century, found off the coast of Israel, um, where they analyze the tin, and it seems to have a Cornish origin. And of course, the, where, whereas we know lots of sources of bronze in the Bronze Age, um, Cyprus, uh, Timna in Israel, Anatolia, and even Sardinia and the West Mediterranean, we have very few, uh, we have very little knowledge of where tin came from. Um, and it's been suggested Cornwall as well as uh, Dillman or Bahrain and as well as, um, as well as Anatolia. And the problem is, is that with the exception of Cornwall, tin sources, they would have been exhausted in, in antiquity and they really don't leave traces.